Last time we were together, a couple weeks ago, we started working on this question, uh, in what sense is God inside of us? In what sense is God inside of us? And we spent a good half hour not answering that question. We just, we just looked at a bunch of ways that that cannot be true. Uh, while we were driving here, my son saw the full moon and he asked me, is God in the moon? What is the correct answer to that question? <laughs> well, I said, son, in is said in many modes. <laughs> no, I didn't. I just said no. Because I, I know in his mind what he's thinking, and that would be pantheism. <laughs> uh, there are rocks in the moon. There is light in the moon. Let's see, that's a good one. Is light in the moon? Light. Is light in the moon? Yeah, in, in a sense, right? Uh, so we spent all of last week just looking at uh, a bunch of different ways one thing can be said to be in another so that we could say, uh, this is not how God is in us. So does anyone remember some of those ways that we looked at? Or did anyone come up with some new ways uh, that something can be said to be in another that we didn't talk about? Any overachievers out there? Andrew. Well, we talked about God uh, not being in a hand as a finger is in a hand, or a hand is in a finger. Okay. Yeah, so that was our example of as a part is in the whole, or as a whole is in the part. So God is not in us like a hand is in the finger, or like a finger is in the hand. And what heresy would that be if he was? If we were one with God, like your finger is in your hand, what, what would be problematic about that? I don't know if that knows though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, making God a creature, breaking the, the first rule of theology. So it, again, this would be monism or pantheism, anything that's just saying all is one or we are God. So monism is, the fan, is one of the fancy ways of saying that all is one, mon. And then pantheism is a form of, of monism. And then there's like panentheism. There's all sorts of uh, heresies out there. Uh, let me just run through real quick all of those ways that we looked at last time. So the first one was as a body is in place, one thing can be in another as a body is in place. And this is the most proper way of saying in. So we are in this room as bodies in this place. Um, so uh, we said that that's, that cannot be true of God because God is not a body. God is not a body. Um, the second one, uh, and the third one was the whole as in part and part as in whole. So we already did that. The fourth one was as a species is in a genus or as a genus is in a species. And does anyone remember uh, what the example was for that one? Is God in us like a species is in a genus or a genus is in a species? Okay, the, so the example of this one was man. So uh, the species man is in the genus animal, and then the specific difference of man within that genus is rationality. So the, the most proper definition of man is rational animal. So it gives you the genus and the species. Does that make sense? Genus and species business comes from Darwin and evolution. 
Uh, no, gen- genus and species is uh, predates Darwin by like a thousand years or two thousand years or more. Or more. Um, the way that animals can be classified into kingdom phylum class, uh, that is a different thing than what we're talking about here. Or are you not convinced that you're a rational no, animal? Okay. Um, the, the sixth one is as a form is in matter. So one thing can be said to be in another as form is in matter. So I can see, this is, I'm starting to stretch you guys now. So this is getting more abstract. So the example of this one would be as the soul is in the body. So the soul is the substantial form of the body. Your body is the matter. And then the form is what makes you a person makes you you. So the soul is the immaterial form, your body is the matter. Um, And then the seventh one, and probably the one that you use all the time without even thinking about it, is as an accident is in substance. So remember, accident in this sense is not like a car accident or something unintentional. It is just something that only has being connected to another thing which we call Substance. So the example of this, uh, the classic example of this is whiteness is in Socrates, or Socrates is white. So Socrates is the substance, and he is the thing that persists across all accidental changes of color. So Socrates is white right now, he goes in the sun and tans, and now he's darker, and now he's no longer white or as white. So that is something that is not essential to who Socrates is. He can be not white, um, and therefore we call that an accident. So Aristotle, uh, he tried to crunch down the entire created order into its most, um, into its smallest parts, and there's uh, what he concluded was there's substance. It's just the thing that doesn't change. The principle of identity across all changes. And then there's nine other, what we call accidents, quantity, quality, relation, so forth. All these other things that are accidental, but not essential to us. So um, this is, these are adjectives. That's another way of saying it. You guys know what adjectives are. Um, so is God in us like an accident is in a substance? No. And what... what uh, uh, error or heresy would that be if he was? Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of inverting how things actually are. It's like we depend on God, and if God was in us as an accident, like something he kind of, you know, we, like an accessory, that's another way of thinking about accident, like an accessory. God's not a little earring that you get to, you know, put in and you take out when you want, though some people think he is. All right, so that, those are so God is not in us in any of those ways, and so we're kind of just trying to do process of elimination to figure out okay how is He in us, and then the last one I forget if we did um, if we had time to talk about this one last time, but we've talked about this before, and that is as a agent or actor is in a patient or a thing being acted upon. Uh, in technical jargon, this is called efficient causation. So as a cause is in its effects, and if none of that made sense to you, just think 
as a author is in his story or as the craftsman is in the thing that he makes, uh, as the elf is in the sword that he crafts. Our, our example was as Tolkien is in Middle-earth or as uh, Lewis is in Narnia. And we said, is God in us like that? Ah, yes, the answer is yes. God is in us like this, and this is common presence or omnipresence, and it is where God is in us as making us to be. Can anyone think of the proof text, uh, Bible verse, uh, that demonstrates that? Genesis 1, 29. That is a legitimate proof text. That, that, is, that would be one. Uh, the one that would draw it out a little more is when Acts uh, is in Acts 17 when Paul says, quoting a pagan philosopher, "In him we live and move and have our being." Uh, so God is in us in the sense that we are in Him. <laughs> you see how we? Okay. So um, we call that God's common presence or omnipresence. And by the way, uh, this is also how God is in the moon. Is God in the moon? Yes. Of course, James, as agent is impatient, as efficient cause. <laughs> Who's your dad? All right. Okay, so, um, so there's one way that I've taught you that God is in us and really uh, in all things, which means you know God's in you like he's in the moon, not that special. Hence, we call it common presence. And uh, this might be my, my favorite lesson thus far because I finally get to tell you about special presence. So this is, uh, tonight we're going to talk about how God is specially present uh, in, in you. Um, remember the reason that we're asking this question. Um, let me give you kind of a twofold reasoning for why I think this is a very worthwhile question to ask. One is because uh, this is one of two realities that God being in the tabernacle and temple signifies. So uh, there's two primary realities signified when the glory cloud goes into the temple. So who can tell me at least one of those realities? What is it signifying when the glory of God goes into the tabernacle? It's telling you about something in the future. Jesus. Yes, Jesus. That was the answer. So we're talking about the incarnation the presence of God when it is eventually hypostatically, that's our fancy word, when the, the presence of God is united in Jesus Christ. When God and man are united in the person, Jesus Christ. So this, remember that was one of the forms of God's presence, common presence, hypostatic presence, and then now special presence, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. And what is the proof text for this? I'm not just like, making stuff up here. What is the proof that God in the temple is pointing to Christ? John 1, and he says, you get the gold star tonight. Write your name on the, on the board. My, good job. So yes, uh, the fact that it says that in the incarnation, it was God, the word, coming and literally tabernacling among us And Jesus says things like, destroy this temple and three days I will raise it up. And it says, referring not to the temple temple, but to the temple of his body. And then we have all these other passages where Paul says, you're a temple. 
You should be holy because God is in you. And that is what we are trying to understand tonight. And of all the things in um, Christian meditation, we are approaching really the summit and height of Christian meditation this evening. So when Moses climbed up to the top of Sinai, into the cloud, the dark cloud of unknowing, um, that's kind of what we are doing and have been doing over the last five weeks. It's, it's all been building to this moment where, yes, we would see Christ and we could do a whole uh, uh, series of lessons on Christ, but God in us, God in us, um, that's what we want to understand. So how does God dwell inside the believer? I'm going to give you the answer. It's going to probably not make much sense to you, and then I'm going to explain what I mean by this answer. So how, this is the mode, the way in which God dwells inside the believer. It is as knowledge in the knower and as the beloved is in the lover. As knowledge is in the one knowing and as the object of love is in the one loving. This is a new mode of God's presence that we only know because scripture tells us. You wouldn't know this unless God told you that you are a temple and he indwells you. So um, let me read you a a few examples of this uh, knowledge in the knower, love in the lover in the Bible. And once you get this idea, you're going to just start seeing it all over the Bible because it's, it's everywhere. So if, if you've ever went to a Bible study that studied John 15 about abiding in God, and you're like, well, what does that actually mean? This is what we're talking about right now. Okay, so let me, let me just read you a few verses and think about this. Knowledge, how is knowledge in the knower and love in the lover? This is John 14, 15 to 17. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Who is that comforter? Verse 17, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, note the knowledge, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. All right, another one, 1 Corinthians 2.12, Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. So the connection there, receiving the spirit, knowledge of God. 1 John 4, 12 to 13, John says, no man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. So if you love one another, God is dwelling in you. This is how you know that you dwell in God and God in you because he hath given you of his spirit. All right, and then finally, Ephesians three fourteen to 19, Paul says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, 
that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend, know, with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. So already you're kind of catching, there's a lot of knowledge and love and inness that is spoken of in scripture and spoken of in these passages. So when we became uh, Christians and we made God our refuge, our dwelling place, he also comes and makes us his dwelling place. So there is this mutual indwelling of us in God and God in us. Now, whenever you are trying to understand something about God and are having trouble doing that, um, like when I say knowledge in the knower and love in the lover, what does that mean when it comes to God? It is always helpful to start with what you know on just the creaturely plane. So what do we know about knowledge, creaturely knowledge, love on earth? Charles. So that's a very good question, Charles, and what you are gesturing towards is, uh, would be handled under the common presence part. So like the fact that we can know or that anything that we do know comes from God, we would handle that under common presence, but you're, you're thinking along the right track. So let, let me run through my example, my creaturely example, and then if it's still unclear to you, you can ask me that at the end. Good question. So let's, let's consider what, knowledge, what um, knowledge in the knower and love in the lover is amongst creatures. So consider two people falling in love. Consider falling in love. We'll call these two uh, fictional creatures... Adam and Eve. I'm just for uh, illustration's sake. Adam is lonely. He's a bachelor. He has a knowledge of animals and even loves some of the animals, but it just doesn't seem to, you know, satisfy him. So Adam is lonely. Adam wants to know and love someone that is his equal, someone that's a little more like him. Well, it's Adam's lucky day. He takes a nap. He wakes up and he sees a thing. He wakes up and there's something beautiful standing in his garden. So Adam sees this something and we want to know what is happening in Adam's mind, his soul or his intellect as he is seeing this thing that no one has ever seen before. He has never seen before. 
So he's got his five senses. And first he apprehends that this thing in front, in front of him is no mere animal. This one talks. This one laughs. This one speaks. This one has a shape that is like him. This is not just a really pretty ape. This is uh, something a lot closer to who he is. He, know, he knows himself. He knows you know, his appendages. He knows his form. He knows that he can speak and reason. And in conversation with this thing, he discovers so also this thing can do the same. So Adam concludes from this brief interaction, he has knowledge that this is a human person. This is someone with rational nature just like him. But despite having this shared human rational nature with Adam, he also notices there are some real bodily differences. Did I mention this thing is not wearing any clothes? So Adam sees that this naked thing has different body parts in certain places than he does. And therefore, in his mind, proceeds this internal word, this concept of understanding what is in front of him that we might call a name or a definition. Right? You cannot name or define something until you have actually grasped and understood its nature. Right? You can't name something that you have no knowledge of. Right? What is its genus? What is its species? How is it like or unlike other things? This is how you kind of get down to a, a definition of this new thing that is in front of him. So Adam beholds what he knows is a person. He grasps the, dis, the similarity and dissimilarity that is evidence in the body uh, to him. It's, it's similar but dissimilar. And then he pronounces in Genesis 2.23, okay, these are real characters, not totally fictional. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, here's the name, woman, because she was taken out of man. And then in the next verse, God conducts a marriage and these two become one flesh. So here we now have a physical union, an indwelling of husband and wife. <clears throat> Now, after the fall, in Genesis 3, Adam's knowledge of his wife or his woman increases, and he learns that those body parts are for something, and he realizes this is the mother of all living. This is the mother of the living, and therefore, from that new knowledge he has dwelling inside of him, he conceives in his intellect another name. So he knows she's woman, but now his knowledge increases, and now he gives her this name because she's mother of the living, Hava, Eve. So he's increased in knowledge, and you know, you can't actually love something you do not know. And as his knowledge of his wife, his woman, his Eve increases, so also does his love for her. And then, famously in Genesis 4.1, it says, and Adam knew Eve, and she conceived. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. So let's think a little bit about the different ways that Adam and Eve are in one another, or united, or with, together. So 
Number one, they're physically united in the marital act. Two, they are legally or covenantally united as one flesh and one household, one family. But they are also spiritually united as knowledge in the knower and the beloved is in the lover. When Adam's knowledge of Eve increases and he knows her to be good, his desire for her is increased, aroused, and he freely chooses to love and delight in her. And so even if Eve is not physically present, she is present to Adam in his soul, in his intellect, in his mind, in his memory, in his knowledge and love of her. He knows his wife. He loves his wife. And so there is a sense that even when she is physically apart from him or he's not physically uh, with her in the marital act, that she is dwelling inside of him. So this is what we mean by the mingling of souls. Right? The soul or the spirit, that immaterial part of you, that you know, the marital act is just the external sign of something that is intended to be spiritual, right? It's not merely two bodies coming together, it's two souls uh, intertwining into one another. So this is what we mean by uh, by knowledge in the knower and love in the lover. Love is a unitive or uniting force. Love draws you out of yourself and into the object that you love. So it's both drawing you out and also being inside of you. Right, we're doing metas- metaphysics of love tonight. This is a, a difficult thing, but it's a glorious thing. Right? Love pulls you out of yourself and into the other person so that the mind and will of the person we love, because the more we know and love them, the more their mind and love is inside of us. This is how uh, you kind of can know what your spouse is thinking before they say anything. Or, I know what they would say. Right. Who should we ask, mom or dad? I know what mom would say, let's ask dad. That's a form of knowledge in the knower and uh, kind of some love in, in the lover. <clears throat> this is what we mean by knowledge in the knower, love in the lover. We can know what they are thinking, what they are feeling, because they are inside of us in this way. Let me give you just a couple non-romantic examples of this that are just straight out of the Bible because this is also how uh, the apostle speaks and there's many other examples of this. So Paul says to the Philippians, I think this is in chapter one, verse seven or somewhere in there. He says, it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. So he's writing a letter to the Philippians and says, it's good for me to think all these things about you because I have you in my heart, the immaterial part of Paul. Likewise, he says to the Colossians, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Uh, There's also the uh, kind of a a negative example of this. Remember uh, Gehazi? after, I forget if it's Elijah or Elisha, uh, heals Naaman the Syrian, 
And Naaman's like, hey, I'll give you whatever reward you want. Thank you for healing me. Uh, is it Elisha? And Elisha says, uh, no, uh, it's not a time for us to be receiving you know, gifts. It's a time of exile right now. But then his servant Gehazi goes out and catches up with him and he makes up a story and he's really just trying to get, um, get rich from Naaman the Syrian. And then when he comes back, Elisha says to him, did not my heart go with you when you went out to see Naaman the Syrian? And then he says, his leprosy is going to be on you now. So he knew his servant. And when his servant left, Elisha, I mean, he's also a prophet, so God could have told him, but he says, my spirit went with you, right? You, you send your kid off to college and you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> my spirit was with you, son. I know what you did. So the things that we know, uh, remember, love, and delight in are truly inside of us, and that is how God wants to be inside of us. As the supreme object of knowledge and the supreme object of our love. It says in Psalm 10:4, the wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So that's why God doesn't dwell in the wicked. God is not in all of their thoughts. And unlike Eve, unlike any other created thing that we can see and know with our eyes, what do we know about God? He is invisible. He is a spirit. He is incorporeal. He is eternal. He is infinite. And as it says in 1 John 4.12, no man hath seen God at any time. So, whereas Adam could get knowledge of Eve and have knowledge in him the knower and love in him the lover by his sense perceptions and interaction, uh, what is the way for us to know God? Well, his word Supremely, this is why Christ came. Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God. There is no doctrine of the Trinity that is explicitly taught until the coming of Christ. And yet, if you think on Christ and you recognize that this is the Son of God, you are starting to ascend in knowledge of God, right? So you, you can know Jesus walking around Galilee as a miracle worker and teacher. You have some knowledge of Jesus. But once you recognize by the gift of faith that he is God, and then you, you read the scriptures and you are told all of these other things that you could never deduce outside of uh, supernatural revelation. Well, now you are given supernatural knowledge. You are given supernatural Love. We call this charity. This is why Paul says there are many great gifts that God gives the church, but the greatest one is love. It's charity. It's the love that God pours forth into our hearts by the Holy Ghost. It is the very person of the Holy Spirit that is given unto the saints. And this is why when you love one another, the Bible says God is 
dwelling in you. It is not as if he was sleeping. <laughs> so if you are elect, if, if you are uh, someone that he has effectually called and caused to be born again, the Holy Spirit has made his home in you. And just like you aren't always in your home, sometimes you go out, sometimes you think about other things, right? God really indwells the elect, the saints, permanently. Though there are times when it feels like nobody's home. But that's actually because you are not contemplating God. Knowledge in the knower, love in the lover. If you ever... Um, at some point I'll teach a class on Trinity, but Trinity is an extremely difficult doctrine to do. This is actually where you start because the way you understand that God is three in one is by considering these internal processions, we call them, that are inside of you, namely the word or the concept that is in your intellect. When, so when Adam is, is seeing woman, he has this word in his mind, this mental conception based on what he sees, and then he speaks that word, woman, or Eve. That procession inside of you is what John 1 says is the word, the eternal word. That's the analogy for that. So if you're actually going to contemplate God, you actually have to first contemplate your own intellect, your own faculties, of being able to know and how you know and your will, which chooses what to delight in. So um, I'll pause there and uh, before the children come in, uh, I'll entertain any questions. Josh. We probably can't answer this tonight. But <clears throat> seems like you're saying that the way that God dwells in us is through our intellect for our will, mm -hmm. what we know about him, and our, our love of him as the supreme object of our love. Yes. Yep. Yep. Which is, words aren't going to work here. Please <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want to say immaterial. That's not what I mean. I want to say not physical. That's not what I mean either. I guess my question is, what is the, where does the Holy Spirit come in? Because the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. is God. Yes. And so I hear you saying that, and it makes sense as far as how, we, how God rules us. But the Holy Spirit is also God, and he plays a role somehow. Yeah. And, it, you, and then you just said something that sounds like, I'm going to use the wrong word again, sounds like he's physically with us, and I don't mean physically, you know what I mean mm -hmm. by that. But yeah. That he's an actual, yeah. real thing. That's so, really in the room, and not just my intellect. Yep. So all that we're talking about in, under this heading, special presence, or God indwelling, uh, includes the Holy Spirit. It, it actually includes the Father in a certain mode. So it's, it's the Word, the eternal. So J Jesus, hello, son. You want to come sit with me? Okay. Wait, we do some Bible. All right. Let's be quiet for just a minute while I try to answer a hard question. <laughs> so here's... Um, it is not, it is hard to think of how one immaterial thing can be in another immaterial thing. And that's what you're bumping up against, which is why um, the analogy God gives us 
is a cloud going into a physical space. Because you're talking about a level of immaterial abstraction that is so high and difficult, right? I said this would be hard. Um, But anybody can understand a cloud going into a, a body in a space. So what we're saying is, just like in, uh, so think of what Ephesians 5 says about the mystery of marriage is about Christ and the church. So the marital union, um, the mis- we call it the mystical union, the spiritual union, the communion of saints, that we are all members together of one body. Hey, that's kind of like a part is in a whole and a whole is in a part, Right? The reason why we went through that list is because those are the creaturely analogies that help us um, gesture at the actual thing. Like, here's the metaphor. Here's what the metaphor means. So this is why I think probably the, the most fruitful way of meditating, <clears throat> excuse me, um, meditating on knowledge in the knower and love is in the lover is by considering marriage and the union that you have with someone you love. And uh, so think about, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. Well, Christ knows everything, but I don't know everything. So what is Paul meaning by we have the mind of Christ? Well, it means you know him well enough and love him sufficiently enough to know what Christ would do, what would Jesus do, in the situation. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. And in this life, uh, we, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, when he's bumping up against this, the, so he's thinking about love, and this is the greatest of all gifts. And he says, faith is going to pass away. That's how we see God now, is by faith, as seeing him who is invisible. Hope is going to pass away, but love is going to be the thing that remains, and it's why it's the greatest of, of the gifts. And he says, in this life, we only see through a mirror dimly. And when we are asking these kinds of questions, how is an immaterial substance in another immaterial substance? Let's just, we're just talking about humans. We're not even talking about God yet. How is a husband and a wife in one another? Well, it says knowledge is in the knower and love is in the lover. And the more you think about how you and your spouse are united, then you can say, it's kind of like this, but I can only see through a mirror dimly. And then Paul says, but after this life, when we die and go to heaven, we'll be out of the body and we will see God face to face is the example. And that's where we, that's the beatific vision. We see and know all things in the divine essence. So, um, Like I said, that's why what we're doing right now is the height of Christian meditation because it's the closest you can get to what heaven is going to be in this life is when you are meditating upon the Holy Trinity and who is knowledge proceeding essentially and love proceeding essentially. That's the Holy Spirit. Um, You have to first have the creaturely understanding of what even those are so that you can better understand that that is how God is three and one and not three gods, he's one God. Because um, there's something interior to you, proceeding, doing stuff, loving, and yet it's within you. That's the analogy that um, the church has used to expound the doctrine of the Trinity. Excellent question. 
Um, I'll, I'll ask you, so we've got um, the next time we have midweek service, uh, I think Joe's going to be teaching on something, so it'll be my week to be with the kids. So we'll have a good you know, month until we pick this back up again. Would you like me to do an, a second pass on some of this material, um, or would you like me to start in on the actual like furniture of the tabernacle, like what's the bronze altar mean? Um, are, do we still want to work on this super abstract hard stuff, or should we go look at some actual furniture? Andrew? Yeah, it's bending my brain. Okay. <laughs> yes, this is, this is how galaxy brain happens. Uh, so uh, if, it, if it makes you feel any better, um, you know, I've been working on this lesson or thinking about this lesson for like months. Uh, it's hard. This is very hard. And yet it's also, um, it's hard to climb up a mountain, but the views are worth it. And I would love for, um, to help you carry, you, carry you up to base camp, carry you up as far as I can, but a lot of this is work that, you know, we all have to climb uh, into God, and I, I want to help you, you do that.